The opinions expressed on this podcast should be construed only as the opinions of the respective opiners, and some content may not be appropriate for little dragons. Discretion is advised. I can't never stop working hard. Each day I feel I have to improve. Hard work. Determination. I've got to keep pushing myself. Hello and welcome to Haya, the only podcast that's broadcast for the badass with a brain and hopefully a sense of humor. Episode 57, recorded September 28th, 2014, starts now. Hiya, folks, we're back. Uh, this is going to be a little bit different than our usual format. Uh, it's an off week recording, but I couldn't pass up the chance. Uh, our old friend of the show, Alan Pittman, stopped by and uh, dropped off a, a cohort of his, one uh, Stefan Marchatz. Close enough? <laughs> Close enough. Better than most folks do, man. <laughs> who, uh, who is from Switzerland and has a broad range of martial arts experience. So I, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to pick his brain about some of this stuff, have a little chat, and... Uh, you know, you guys get an episode when you normally might not have. So suck it up, soldiers. Uh, there probably won't be any news or anything. I might tack something on at the end if I have time. But what you're getting now is what you get. So <clears throat> say hi to everybody, Stefan. Hey, great to be here. Great to be in the United States. Really? Yeah. yeah. Good to have you. So yeah. we'll kick this off the way we normally do. Um, let's let's uh, tune your mind back. Let's go all the way back. Where is it? Ah, I'm not used to my new glasses yet. <laughs> Throw your mind all the way back to when you were first starting out in martial arts and first got interested in it. And uh, we'll do your CV after this, but what really got you moving in the martial arts as a young person? Yeah, actually, I was a very lively, obnoxious little boy. And, uh, you know, my pediatrician advised my parents to put me in judo. That was the 70s, and basically everyone was really into judo. So, uh, And your doctor said, this yeah, boy needs an I mean, they, they would, <laughs> Normally today they would stuff me with Ritalin, you know, and uh, put right. me on the quiet side. But this was like different. And I went into judo, and uh, normally I guess people say, yeah, and I love it, and knew it, it was a revelation. No, I really hated it. It was horrible. And I had to go there. I still remember it was, I was eight years old and I had to go there every Monday and I was really scared of falling and I would kind of hide and I was always happy when we did groundwork because the falling was over. And this went <laughs> off for like two years and I swore after two years I was allowed to stop basically because I backed my parents. I, I can't do that anymore. And um, well, basically what happened was that uh, I swore to myself, I'll never put up a gi again, a uniform. I'll never walk on, on, the, on those damn tatamis. Well, surprisingly, it's 2014 and I'm still stuck with the stuff. So it's That's what happens when young people make promises. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I will never. Oh, yes, you will. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this was, I mean, it was the idea because I was always very... Um, I don't know how you guys put it, but I had a very fast mouth. 
Yeah. I was very wise, wise, wise ass, so say, you know. Yeah, that's how we put yeah. it, too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, but I was too slow. I was too weak. And uh, I had to find ways to defend myself, basically. Your mouth was writing checks that your ass couldn't catch. Exactly. One, yeah. I think one doctor once mentioned, this guy needs a, a carry permit for his mouth. Because I was, <laughs> I was always the witty one, you know. But I was not very physical. And, uh, but then I went back into karate, Shotokan karate, and did that for, uh, still hated it, but did that for like two or three years. And I was the youngest in the group. And then, then the magic moment happens because in karate you have to do for the, the belt promotions, you have to do a kata, right? And mm -hmm. uh, I had like the first yellow belt, ninth kiyu, gizam. And I, I was sick before that, so I missed some part of the kata. So I went into a bookshop to look for kata, but look for shadow shadow forms we call it shadow forms in german right and then I, I saw this booklet and it said something about shadow and i pulled it out and it had the ninja on it and uh -huh. this was it and i was hooked and i can what, what year might this have been sorry what year was this this was 1984 and that's and right I at was, the peak of the ninja thing yeah yeah, yeah yeah and i would we would watch ninja movies uh, oh, with shokusuki exactly yeah. <laughs> revenge of the ninja ninjas And when I came back with this book written by a German guy named Wolfgang Ettigl, that at that time didn't know actually what he was doing. It was just a bunch of friends and him and dressed up as ninjas uh, hiking in the woods. My parents really thought, because this guy really lost his mind. Because I was okay. in all these philosophies and uh, drawing in young. So, and it was a time nobody barely knew what, what martial arts were. There was just judo and there was karate and this is it. Right. No tai chi, no kung fu. So uh, this was like... And then I start, but then Steve Hayes' books, who made, uh, mm -hmm. well, probably listeners from the U.S. know the name very well, who basically was the first American who popularized it. He yes. wasn't the first American training with Hatsumi in Japan. That was no, Jerry and I Dobson. have a feeling it was never the best either. <laughs> well, uh, honestly, I don't want to bash on this Steve, and this is from all the major players, this is the only one I'd never met. But I know that he's an extraordinary martial artist, he's doing his thing, and I think he can motivate a lot of people. But I know that he didn't have the time down in Japan that he he said he had. Right. And apparently what he did, he just told people, uh, don't go to Japan because Hatsumi doesn't see any other students. But this is what I got from, from Bujinkan members in the U.S. 2002 when I was spent some couple of months on invitation teaching in your country. So, okay. Um, yeah, this was it. And then Steve's Hayes books came out and I started training them and re realized there are patterns to the techniques. You know, there was like in every book, there were similar patterns. So I got a body of mine interested and I got training. And then two or three years later, there was the first Butchinkan Black Belt out in Switzerland. And interestingly enough, there was um, there was an Israeli side to it. So the first Westerner that got exposed to regular year long training in Japan was called Dora Navon, who disappeared somehow like a ninja does, you know. Uh, teaching Feldenkrais, I think, in Japan. But he was an extraordinary martial artist. I mean, he was he was really the best. And he got a student who moved to Germany, married a German girl, and this guy would spread the Bujinkan in Germany in the beginning. Okay. And I was part of this group because there was another group just going on their own to Japan, but the Israeli stuff was really strong because it was really... I mean, those guys started training 74, low-key, no business, no advertisement. Right. And it was, in the old days was really rough training, just disappeared. I mean, we would do in every class, we would do a lot of randori, kumite sparring. But I think today is a stupid way to train because, I mean, it was basically just kickboxing and judo. Because once you, you have to fight free, you just 
if you don't have your stuff down, you just revert you to... Revert. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah, th those were the old days. And then uh, I climbed up my ladder, went to seminars, and then in the beginning of the 90s, I ended up in Japan and uh, went back there for 10 years, regularly training. So Did you live there full-time? No, no, no. just no, spend no. a few months no, a no. year in and out? How that, did that work? Uh, I would, the first time I went down there, actually, a buddy of mine went down there for three months and came back, and we heard... And we were one of the first one in Europe, not the not the first generation, like the second. Right. And I saw how much he changed into three months. It was like wow. And he's still a very close friend of mine. I think he stopped training as well. But he said, "Well, man, you have to go over there." So I was a student, and I scrapped all the money I had, and I went down there in the beginning, mid nineties, ninety four, ninety five, for two months. Okay. And then I returned every year for as time as I could afford between two weeks and six, five weeks. So right. So at the end, when I call back, I have about one hour, one year straight training time down in Japan. So, well, um, the stories you hear about uh, Bujinkan, the training is notoriously tough. You know, was that your experience as well? Like uh, lots of lots of full contact stuff. Uh, you know, very hard workouts, very dedicated training. You really hear that. I mean, in the old days. Yeah, well, maybe I'm just hearing well, older I, stories. Well, I, I know that today, and that's today is going back at least 20, 20 years, it's very soft. It's almost like yoga, tai chi. It's really? almost no conditioning, no, no really heavy back work. There might be groups, but the mainstream is very, very soft. And um, I asked teachers in Japan about the old days. And I said, well, what happened was that once the foreigners start flooding Japan, Hatsumi would pull a break and say, um, well, we have to get soft, more softened up because we can't cope if anybody's injured from, from abroad. You know, I mean, this will put us in some difficulties with the authorities and stuff like that. Right, right. So there was, when I trained there, there was almost no resistant training. There was no training without resistance. And this is the mainstream today in the Bujinkan, what I can observe. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've been out for 10 years, but uh, if I go back on YouTube, it's it's still the same, yeah. So the old days when Hatsumi trained uh, up to 1975 when Steve Hayes came over, this was basically just a living room. They would put the furniture apart and there were like six guys from the neighborhood training with the ninja grandmaster and they would really get on it. But I talked to the old timers about the early days a lot and they told me, you know, um, it wasn't Hatsumi that would be, be so injurious or something. It was us because we didn't barely know what we were doing. You know, they probably. Each other, I mean, but, I mean we yeah. both had those experience in training. I would hurt yeah. myself and hurt others when I was a young man because we basically yeah. don't know how o does this over lock work. Uh, under <laughs> control. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How does the lock work? Let's see. Does yeah. it hurt? No. <laughs> what if I do it fast? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and go on my knee yeah. and drop my knee. Yeah. Well, uh, so. Uh, were you satisfied? I mean, you stayed with it for a while. When you when you brought what you learned there back home as you were training throughout the year, how did you practice it? You know, did you have a group that you trained with at home? Was it more or less the same there? Was it harder, softer? Well, what I did was basically from day one, uh, even when training with Stephen Hayes groups, I just founded my own group, my working group. And then right. I got stuck with this really, really great guy called Thomas Koenig back in Bern. Um, if you're listening to that, hi, Thomas, haven't spoken to you in 15 years. It's because, uh, well, times things, you know. And uh, I had this dojo, and uh, the dojo would evolve. 
So I would I was teaching like three to four um, nights a week, and sometimes there was a period in my time I had even two dojos run by students of mine in different parts of the country. So we would really and we would really try to follow the old days. I mean I mean we would really we figured out pretty pretty easily that there's a lot of playing around with techniques. You know you go in variations variations, and you can do that if the the, the opponent or the, the partner isn't resisting. You right. never got the feeling. So we really tried to get the basics down and. Um, Looking back, I mean, um, after I left, I got a lot of emails from people. Uh, why did you leave? Did, did, there's no grudge, absolutely none. I'm thankful. I learned a lot, and it was great days in Japan and great mm-hmm. days be training with my people. I mean, I wouldn't be here training with Alan Pittman, the Bako system, if I hadn't came across the Buchin kind and put so much time in it. Well, yeah, there. <clears throat> I mean, in my experience and most of the other martial artists I knew, usually we don't start out in one thing and we're in it our whole lives. Something catches your interest. You do that for a while. Either you move, your life changes, or what's going on there changes. Something changes and you try something new. And usually people go through three or four things before they kind of settle on something that they're going to hang on to and Mm -hmm. and make that carry them Mm -hmm. through the rest of their lives. Usually when they get too old to learn something new like me. (laughs) (laughs) I exaggerate a little bit, but not too much, you know. Um, So, uh, you know, that's good. You had a great time with that. And uh, do you still practice that at all? No. No, no, no. just let it go. I uh, really, uh, these days, my my only main study uh, is Bagua. I I even don't cross-train anymore. I used to do some uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or do some Eskrima with people. I don't do that anymore. Because one is time, and the other thing is I found a system that I really like, and I'm fully aware it's, like you said, it's the last system I'm going to le- learn, at least in this life. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, well, but it's still in the system. I, I mean, I still can reproduce everything. And uh, we had, I closed down my dojo in 2011 and uh, we would do a kind of a bye-bye seminar and we went through all the stuff we trained. And I put on a gi after 10 years and it was still there. And I dare to say it was even improved through all the insights in the other arts. So, right. Yeah. But there's no desire to go back there because, yeah. Well, uh, we'll talk about the Bagua and stuff because I know you're having a great time with that. But before we get there, you've done some other things. Uh, you mentioned some Wushu. Yeah. I did uh, Wushu for about eight years with a, with a Wushu professor, a guy who got trained in Shandong, mm-hmm. one of those Wushu universities. And uh, he's still around in the Zurich area, uh, Wu. Um He's a great guy. He is... I would compare him. He used to be something like a like a like a super athlete, you know, like somebody like doing uh, gymnastics or something on Olympic level. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I went there because he was the only one claimed to teach Bagua Shingi and Tai Chi, and I learned the twenty four Tai Chi, the, the mainstream yeah. one that I still enjoy once in a while. I, yeah, I just yeah. like the relaxation. I did some Shingi and I did the Bagua and the Qigong, and uh, I I see him once a week because he's my acupuncturist and he is a great guy and it's, it was really good. What was his name one more time? Shao Shen Wu. Shao Shen Wu. Well, everybody calls him Wu because nobody can pronounce his first name. You know? Okay. <laughs> uh, what I found was interesting to hang out, first of all, hang out with the Japanese teachers and afterwards hang out with the Chinese teacher. and um, Smoking with, cigarettes and drinking tea? Yeah. Well, you would, you would smoke. You, you, you would basically drink a lot of beer with some of the Japanese guys. Mm. I won't give you any names yeah, at no, that time, but I had some really great time getting drunk with uh, senior teachers and they would open up suddenly and tell me all these stories. Oh, yeah, that's and when the good stuff comes out. <laughs> they're contempt for uh, some of the Westerners and you go like, wow, 
Wow. And but it was always a big distance. He was the sensei, you were the student. With a Chinese teacher, I found out, it was like being with a friend, you know? It was yeah. always like hanging out and he talks about his family problems or about his life in China, why he left. And so this was like a huge mentality shift for me. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've had both experiences myself on some level or, or another, and I, I think I like the Chinese way the best because it just it winds up feeling more like family than you're part of some sort of military unit. Or exactly, something. yeah. yeah. yeah I, I, either I have to defend a bit the Bujinkan because Hatsumi Sensei himself is a very un-Japanese individual. Mm. He is extremely relaxed, and in many things he's like a little boy. That's why the whole Bujinkan is also so playful. Yeah. And uh, that creates also people who are used to foreigners because still in Japan, there are more gaijin, more foreigners, still in, even in Japan. The training. training oh, well, you yeah. might have a class of 50 people in, in Tokyo Budokan where Hatsumi used to, I don't know if he still does, teaches once a week and or twice a week, I forgot. And you might have 48 foreigners and you have two Japanese and from the 48 foreigners, 40 are visiting from abroad. I mean, it's really huge. I mean, people are going to Japan like... We, we say in Switzerland uh, we have uh, wa- very well-developed um, public transportation, so it's like people taking the bus, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, so it's kind of a cottage industry there now, the, the tourists. Yeah. Is it, uh, I wouldn't call it an industry because if it were, if it were an industry, it would be like uh, you had to organize it perfectly. So every yen that you spend in Japan goes directly into organization. It's definitely not. People right. are just, I mean, People just show up for training and they train and they pay and they go home. And uh, there have been a lot of accusations of Hatsumi Sensei collecting all this money, getting a rich man. I never had the feeling that he was a money machine at all. He just right. likes to be the star and he's an amazing martial artist. We have to give him that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, do you think um, that a lot of the people that are doing this are like maybe they're teachers in America or whatever, and, or they want to be teachers in America and they know if they go a couple of times out to Japan that they'll have this extra cachet as a teacher, whether they actually learn anything more there or not. Is that part of what's going on there or Absolutely. Not? Okay. <laughs> and you get... You, you get you, the same thing with the Shaolin Temple and exactly. all that stuff. And yeah. additionally, you, you know that uh, the Japanese arts have the Don Rank uh, promotion thing going on. Yeah. And you autom- automatically you promote it one or two ranks when you go to Japan. And I mean, this is why the Bujinkan has 15 Dan ranks. What, 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 what's, yeah, special. Right. <laughs> special. <laughs> That's okay. I, you know, ultimately, nothing wrong with it. It's human nature. And, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so well, as, while we're still on, sort of, uh, we touched on Wushu there for a second, but while we're, we're still in the karate arena, um, you mentioned Ellis Amder's name earlier, former guest on the show. Uh, did you train with him? Or how did how did you? Uh, Whom? Ellis. Yeah. Ellis Amdur. Ah, Ellis Amdur. Uh, it's very funny. I never met Ellis in person. Okay. I went twice to Seattle, once alone for f- vacation, one three years ago with my family, and he was always out of the country. Okay. But <laughs> Ellis and me, it's like circling around. Right. And I ran into him through his really good books. And he's fully aware because I told him, I mean, uh, Dwelling with Horse Sensei is just a brilliant book mm-hmm. because he's damn honest. Yeah. And I know that he was friend and student of Terry Dobson. Terry Dobson was the first American who would train with Hatsumi in the 60s. And I know that Alice at one point was asked to join the Bujinkan. So Alice and me exchanged some email about that. So this is how we came in, in touch. And then 
I, Alan and Alice met, and actually friends of mine in Greece that I used to hang out are his students. So there's a really interesting connection, but up to this point, I haven't met, met, met the man in person, but I'm sure it will happen one day. Okay. We'll do whatever we can to facilitate yeah. <laughs> that. <laughs> well, what, just when I hear stories like that, there, there really is, you know, there's so many millions of martial artists in the world today, but at sort of the upper levels or whatever, there's a fairly small group of people and they all kind of get stirred into the same pot. So and so, I'm always amazed at the connections, whether firsthand or secondhand, that all these people have. And like most of the ones I have, I made through Alan because he's up in that mm-hmm. that world where he's constantly traveling, teaching, and, and just meeting all these fascinating characters. But, you know, it's there is this sort of little... And believe me, I'm not the kind of person to mystify anything, but there's this sort of active group that sort of churns at the top of this thing that, uh, I don't know, it's just fascinating to me, you know, how... I had a, I had to talk with my friend George down in 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 in, in Athens, uh, not Athens, Georgia, but Athens, Greece. Who is a <laughs> thanks for clarifying. <laughs> well, you have to be clear. Yes, around <laughs> especially here, in the U.S. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm from Switzerland. That's like uh, in Europe, in the center, very tiny. Well, anyway, um, and we talked about this phenomenon, and he also said, you know, Steph, there are a lot of people, uh, there are those same guys being around real lineages, mm-hmm. being exposed to in training like Alice was with Araki Ryu, I guess, yes. and, and Alan with Mr. Hung. Mm-hmm. They got exposed to real lineages, so there's the same motivation, and okay, they're not a lot. There are not a lot of them around. No. I mean, to how many how many people you think Alan really took through the whole Gao Bagua system? I mean, I know personally of probably a dozen, mm. maybe two you dozen see? maximum yeah. Yeah. That, that I'm aware yeah. of. So, so yeah. And those guys start connecting as well because mm-hmm. I mean I know a few because uh, Alan Alan spoke of you and uh, I know you you've been in the core group and stuff like that so we we and I said well I have to come down there I have to meet this Dave guy because uh, you know and you met CB and stuff like that I mean and this is just I like hope a you're normal. not too disappointed well. Uh, <laughs> It's uh, it's Alan, okay. Yeah, Alan dropped you off here, so you can't flee. Yeah, exactly. He's kind of stuck with it. He just he just flat right. He yeah. just here he is. Bye bye. No, that's I was standing, you do. Yeah. standing in Dave's living room with my backpack on. I was like, there was this dog, and it was like, oh, okay, here I am. <laughs> but I like yeah, that. Then I the mean, banjo music started, and you really got yeah. nervous. Yeah. Um, no, it's uh, and I only bring that up because I think it is something you said something about you know being exposed to real lineages or you know. There's there's a different uh, most of the people that I know of in that circular circuit they're not getting really rich off this or anything else they're concerned with getting something forward in time mm-hmm. you know and I know for my little piece of it you know I've got two students that I've taken all the way through the thing two and 10 years of teaching I'm okay with that you know I, I would hate to not pass it on to anyone but I'm not trying to make a buck on this really you know it's i don't even teach for money anymore and i don't know it's just it's 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 startling to me sometimes the dichotomy between that and what you see at your average corner martial arts school in the strip mall or whatever where probably some fantastic martial artists in there but they're kind of stuck within a dogma they have to stay to their people they have to stay to their creed and they and they have to make money every month to keep the shingle out and the the roof over their head and i know you did that for a while it it sounded like you were just so relieved when you got to stop paying that monthly rent and just focus on what you wanted to do and what you liked i had a school 
in Zurich, uh, what's not the cheapest of places in the world, right? right. Um, and it wasn't a fancy thing. It was just basically it was. Uh, well, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to do that to say that a shithole in the basement. Uh, You're allowed to say whatever one, the fuck okay, you want. Okay, okay, good because I'm aware of the sensitivity of the effort, but that's basically well. Anyway, and <laughs> I had to pay about a, a horrendous sum of money every month, and I, I was never good in marketing. Right. And I didn't. I didn't want to. And then. We had our peak in 2003 because The Last Samurai came out with Tom Cruise and suddenly I, was, I went from 15 students up to 40 because everybody wanted to become a damn samurai, you know, wielding, wielding a sword. So, but it tires you out, as you know, because you go around, you teach the basics all the time to the same group who's not really interested. Some are there, people are there for different reasons. Oh, yeah, no, half of what you're doing is you're shattering their illusions. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, <laughs> and my own training tiresome. didn't get anywhere, you know. I was yeah. just doing basic. I mean, I don't mind to do the basics, but they're, they're the core of the whole thing. But I got really tired of it because I just felt this is not what I wanted to be. I, I settled for a while almost teaching to stuff professionally because I was in between jobs, so say, and I would travel a lot. And I would get so fed up quickly by when I taught in 15 years ago in California for a month in different dojos, every night in a different dojo. Yeah. And I realized this can't be. This is not satisfactory for me. Hey, look, we have a little visitor. Hey. Hi, Ola. Your nap's over, huh? We're doing a recording, so... If you want, you can grab the little tiny TV in the bathroom. Folks, I'll, I may or may not cut this part out. <laughs> and you can watch a show, okay? And I'll come get you when we're done. Thanks, buddy. He's sleepy. <laughs> I know. I have a five-year-old at home. <laughs> I know how they can be. Yeah. When they're sleepy, they're tamed. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's lovely while it lasts. Yeah, yeah, Unless you're yeah. trying to get their shoes on and out the door to school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, where were we? <laughs> well, it was about the obnoxious thing of teaching. Uh, yeah. And that, I mean, I had, of course, I have, of course, friends who do that, or acquaintances, at least to say, who, does, who do that professionally. And nobody really seems to be really happy. Yeah. There are one or two that really enjoy that. But, I mean, I'm a teacher as a profession, so I'm teaching all the time. And I have a little company where we teach uh, psychology uh, protocols, holistic healing stuff, some on the road a lot with this stuff and that's why i'm done teaching martial arts basically i'm done i have a core group and four of seven eight guys who've been loyal to me and they really want to train they're great guys and it's like a family and and they pay for the rent of the room so yeah i mean we we meet for tactical training maybe yeah well one of the beautiful things about that is you're at a place where you've still got people to train with but there's no pretense anymore you're teaching but you're also learning within yeah, the same course, group yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know all the best teachers I've had were like that, um, you know, um, and Alan's a great example because he was, you know, when we got that serious hardcore morning group going really solid, he's like, this is fantastic. I haven't had a chance to train mm -hmm. like this since I was training with Hung because mm -hmm. just teaching and keeping it mellow, teaching a lot of older people, it just, you know, he wasn't making mm -hmm. any progress either. And he got to try things out mm -hmm. on us at mm -hmm. the same time we were trying them out on him, you know, and it was I think it's more productive when you have sort of that feedback loop mm -hmm. arrangement with your training partners mm -hmm. rather than you have to maintain sort of the mystique of the one who knows exactly, it all and yeah, hands it yeah. out from and, on high. And, and that was a big big trap also for me in the Bujin Khan. You, you were there insanely high, high, highly graded at the end with your black belt. And I always tried to, to went with the group. But basically I would go around and correct techniques and it was a non-resistant thing. So the, it was a bit like Aikido, you know. Mm -hmm. the, teacher, the teacher is the teacher and... If the UK is crap, the teacher is also crap, so say. 
Right. And uh, I think this is what put me off at the end, that there was no, no, there was nothing to go. And I woke up one day, I went to Japan the last time, 2004, and I saw that even there the training would mellow down because too many people. And I came back and I thought, this is it. I can't do that anymore. It's, it's time to go. It's not the system. It's not the art. It's not Hatsumi. Uh, and no, it's not the Bujinkan community. I still love you guys out there. So uh, no, 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 it was me. It was just time for me to stop and do something different right. along the way. So you were almost out of the game and somehow Bagua pulled you back in. What was it about Bagua that made you say, oh, well, this is worth me putting some time into? Interestingly, in, uh, when I was a, a kid uh, in karate and I started uh, doing the, the ninja arts on my own with 14, I would start buying all the books that were around. And there was one book, Way of the Warrior, translated into German. Mm-hmm. And I was very, very... And now I don't want to be sound mystic or something. I was very dragged into this pictures of those people doing Shingi mm-hmm. and Bagua, even I didn't know what it was. Right. And some people say there's a strong link between the Bujinkan and, and the inner arts. And I know from one source that uh, Hatsumi, back in the 80s, he was teaching and quoting a lot of Tai Chi classics. Because you see, Bujinkan, and the, I, I might steer some stuff up here, but Bujinkan isn't the core reward. It's a synthesis of different arts that have Koryu, old right. Japanese style at the base, right. but they have some strange influences. They're definitely not Japanese. And it was confirmed to me by people who done Tai Chi much longer than I have. When I was still in Buchingham, they said, Stefan, this is not Japanese. Right. So what happened was Hatsumi's teacher, Takamatsu-sensei, spent 10 years in China. And when he came back, he changed his whole training. And suddenly new styles appeared, or new Ryuha, that he didn't talk about before, and we have records for that. Okay. And I was even able to train back in the day, I, I was able to train with the, with the head of the Kuki family, with the head of the old tradition where Takamatsu was, came from. And the teacher confirmed to me that he was there when Takamatsu came back from China and split. So there were some rumors, especially from the Israeli side, who's been long, long time, since they've been training with Hatsumi in the old days, the name Bagua popped up. So and I was, uh, I was down with the Bujing and I thought, well, let's see what the thing with Bagua, what, what's this? let's figure this Bagua thing out. What is that? <laughs> right. So this was the thing. Another thread to pull out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I ended up with the Wushu teacher and then uh, I, I realized this is Wushu. This is, I mean, I knew from the beginning, but you know, Shingi, you can't screw it up so fast or so strongly. The, the foot pattern, it still has to be shingy somehow, the, the stepping. so Right. But the Bagua was like uh, long boxing on a circle, very pretty, very exhausting, uh, but I didn't like the movements. It didn't suit my body, and I thought it's me. And then, well, I met Mr. Pittman, and uh, yeah, this is the story. And then I start being his Gao, Gao student. I mean, this is it. Really enjoying it. I mean, really enjoying it. I just put a, a month of really nice training behind me with him up in his cabin in the woods and uh, uh, yeah. it was a great time really <laughs> the uh, lj uh, ninja camp uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a ninja <laughs> yeah you know we have we have always the saying and he's the old rabbit and i'm the uh, i'm the glass ninja because i always said well one day i will put up the hood with my glasses sticking out and sneak <laughs> around <you know? laughs> that looks vaguely like a yes son I need well you know how to do that yourself don't you Okay, well, help yourself. You can do it. 
I have utmost confidence in you, son. Anyway, um, so that's going to make it a little more difficult, but don't worry. I'll, I'll fix all that in post, uh, as they say. So you just spent a month, uh, and you've been training with Alan for, what, three, four years now? Yeah, I think so. And uh, I was lucky enough that Alan spends, like, every year, a couple of months in my house living with us. So I, I'm basically my, my gal bag with him is always one-to-one, and this was, that's been always very nice. So... I'm really fortunate. I thought about myself, wow, I got this one-to-one hand experience on, you know, and uh, yeah. it's really great. I mean, so um, it's amazing and I'm always amazed. I mean, I'm fairly new to the system, but I'm fairly amazed. I can see the inherent logic in it, how it everything builds up and, uh, you know, the concepts are really convincing. Yeah, well, as we touched on this in our conversation in the Champagne Lounge earlier, but we didn't really dive into it. I really love the way that this system in particular is organized. Because it's a simple, uh, compared to something huge like I did Shaolin or something with tons of long forms and that sort of thing, this is all just little component parts sort of logically arranged from bottom to top. And it's, you know, once you've gone through it, you can start back over at the bottom and and go through and put a whole different emphasis on Mm -hmm. the same. Mm -hmm. For instance, you said you were doing a lot of weapons. Mm -hmm. So you didn't learn any new forms, did you? No, I mean, I've been to the translated forms. Yeah, yeah. we translated forms. And. We would, we would, we would, uh, what amazed me, we would look into the weapons, how they correspond to each house, for instance, each segment that the first house uses short weapons and you you use short weapons on the, on the, on the second house and you're just lost, you know, and this was like, wow, this is really, really interesting. And, uh, well, what I like particularly also with the Chinese systems, you can train on your own. You can't mm-hmm. do that so much. You can do it with the, with the Bujing Khan, but not so much. Like, you really, it seems to design to be with a lot of solo work you can do, and you can yeah. still improve, and your yeah. tactics will improve if you get the angles right. So this is something that really amazes me. Yeah, and it's it's good to have that ability when, you know, especially you're older and you have kids, life catches up with you. You can't spend four hours a day down at the training hall anymore (laughs) i wouldn't want to honestly i mean my training back home is either very early in the morning i'm living at a lake so in 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 summertime i sneak off i always well i i make like a like a promise to myself and say i will sneak off three times a week so i got up at five and i go down to the lake and there's nobody there and it's summer it's already early sunrise and i just train for an hour go back home shower and back to job or train in the evening when everybody's in bed on the balcony. Well, we have pretty spacious balcony for European standards uh, when nobody can see me, you know, right. <laughs> if not I'm exposed. And everybody goes like, oh, 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 it's the weird Stefan again doing his stuff, you know. Yeah, well, you don't want people creeping on your system either with the binoculars <laughs> and the bushes. I don't think they do. I mean, basically, I have nice guys back home and uh, in we are like in a, in, a, in, a, in a house with different parties and people know what I'm doing, but they're... Uh, they're interested, but not that interested. So do you work this stuff with your group down there to, yeah. to yeah. get the two-person, three-person, yeah, whatever course, practice? Of course, of course, yeah. What, what we do at the moment is basically I took, for me, I have like four people that have been around and I have like four people that are like fairly new. And that we, we take like, we do the 24 in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the new guys just settle down with the 24. You know, just the basic stuff, getting your feet out of the way, getting the 90-degree angle. We do pad stuff. And then with, uh, particularly with with one or two guys, one you met, uh, we would even meet sometimes on the weekends. And then we, I would, I would just teach. At this moment, I just, we do randomly. I would go pick a number 
and you say like uh, 9 or uh, 52 yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, 52 would be i don't have memorized them so far what I, I don't have a memorized number. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I, I so, do the names. So it must be somewhere in the, in, <laughs> yeah. in the house of fire or something. So we would work on that, and then I would lately I started breaking down the components and look at uh, how is the entrance, uh, uh, what, what can I do with it, and you, I, you discovered all, always new stuff. So, yeah. yeah, again, that's what I like about this system because it's so uh, uh, component based. I think uh, I'm constantly. The longer I practice, the more I stumble across new stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. at some point, nobody has to show it to you. Mm-hmm. If you just keep digging, mm-hmm. it will make itself apparent. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I really like mm-hmm. that. Rather than having always the next form, the next belt, the next thing, it's like this bottomless pit of on and on and on learning new stuff. And everybody's always concerned with the new form. Mm-hmm. So you wind up forgetting or not using mm-hmm. the stuff you learned before, which is probably where the most of the meat is, you know, in your basics. But what you're telling me, this is this sounds like the Wushu protocols. Because I know in my Wushu training with Shingi, I would learn a form, and then I would learn the next form. And, mm-hmm. then, and then after a year, I said, sorry, uh, Mr. Wu, but I would love to, to, to dig into something. So please, let's do the five fists and show me the applications. Right. Uh, and not learning forms, because they would lead anywhere. I mean, this is like just pretty forms. What I had the feeling with the Bagua is that our style of Bagua is very old because it has strikes and hits that I haven't seen anywhere around in any system. Um, like when we take the, the hammer fists, for instance. Right. And you can see them in old Greek manuals. They, they did. They fought like that, you know. So. Yeah. But this, uh, it, to me, I mean, there are other Bakwa groups we had to talk. There's no, man, there's no necessity to mention names. Right. But when I look at them, it looks like uh, much more modern, much more... Uh, MMA-based, Filipino-style, Wing Chun uh, kind, kind of slap of boxing. Yeah, yeah, and this is really like, you go in and you... I mean, I asked Alan when we met, do you spar? And he said, after a few lessons with hands-on, he said, uh, you understand the answer to do you spar? Because you just go in and you go for the meet and bang, it's over, you know? Right. And, uh, you know, uh, me and the old cronies, we will occasionally... Spar, we call them tequila sparring nights, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but it's just distance and timing and mm-hmm. goofing around. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's basically just okay. We're not going to plan it now, but we're also not going to go for mm-hmm. each other's mm-hmm. heads. You know, <laughs> take our heads off. Just see what you can do. Yeah, but that's yeah. different. That's yeah, different. Exactly. So as long as you keep to the principles. But, and no, the if you look at the system, definitely there are vestiges of armored combat mm-hmm. in there. You know, uh, more attacks to the armpit than you would ever see in something mm-hmm. modernized. Mm-hmm. So things like that. Yeah, hammer fists, using a part of your body that's, if it does strike something hard, is not going to break, you know. Um, lots of eye attacks, um, to more setups than anything else. But, uh, you know, it's... What, what amazes me um, is 24 seems to be really, like, military, simple-based, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, you, can, you, can, you can teach them to a serious student in half a year, and he has a pretty, pretty I mean, if you practice... And 64, I called it the overkill form. Because, I mean, normally against every normal opponent, it's, it's over with the first move. But it seems to be designed against somebody who knew how to fight. Because there's an amazing range of tactics, patterns. You, you pull him down, you pull up, you go to the side. I mean, it's right. like an overkill. You go, you go, you go, till till Til something gets yeah, through. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's really uh, yeah, amazing. And it, But I think it avoids that trap where I've seen in some martial arts where those... The overkill goes on way too long, 
and the other person doesn't react naturally. It's like, you know, they leave their fist hanging in the air, but you hit them 57 times and yeah, then take yeah, them yeah, down. Yeah, it's yeah, like, okay, yeah, really, no, was all no, that no, necessary? No, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> the biggest change to the Bujinkan for my guys training Bujinkan and this was that I told him you were actually allowed to try to block, mm-hmm. you know, because in the Bujinkan, it would attack, it would go out and you would wait for the counterattack. Right. So this has almost the, to put it nicely, uh, a sadistic element somehow. Right. You had to be very cautious about it, not to hurt your partner. Right. But here you allow it. It it's even set up. You block and you catch the arm, and you rea- you, you get the natural. You re- want natural yeah, reactions, and that's, so, yeah, yeah, that makes it alive, right? And when I'm trying to teach somebody, I, I did a little workout with a private student this morning, and he's about halfway through his first trip through the system, um, and uh, so we're working a uh, uh, house of thunder basically, mm-hmm. and. Uh, <clears throat> Well, the listeners, I don't need to get too specific about this because you won't get it if you don't see it. But the the basic thing is, once I show it to him a couple of times and I think he has the idea of what to do, I just relax and react to whatever he does. Mm-hmm. So if he's doing the form wrong, I'm going to react and he's going to get caught. But if he's doing it correctly, I'll react naturally and then he'll get what he wants because if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you, you can really, I mean, this expose you to a wide range of possibilities to train mm. without hurting each other, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is really like... And you can, you can correct them with what you're doing, make them realize what they're doing. And I think that's more effective than a tweaking somebody's elbow three inches over. No, no, it's this. If somebody comes and their hand is too high when they catch you and your elbow can easily fold underneath that, they'll learn when they run into the mm-hmm. tip of your elbow mm-hmm. a couple of times, oh, I need to bring that down. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's, I think it's an effective way to learn. It's always amazing, the angles. The angles amaze me. Because I remember my group just before I left for Atlanta or for the States, I couldn't make training, so I told him to, to train. Uh, I think it's linear number three. Sur- it's search. Search. Uh, search or feel. That's four, I believe. Well, well I, I memorized it now. Support, feel. Four. Search four, or feel. Four, yeah, uh, four. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep. And, they couldn't, and I came back and they said, this technique really sucks. And I said, what? <laughs> well, I couldn't get it work, the guy you met. Mm-hmm. And I said, show me. And we did it hands-on, and what I figured, he was off his angle was off just like 10 percent, and it Mm -hmm. didn't work anymore and this was like this was even for me and i'm fairly new to the system it was like wow so yeah it just it just doesn't work if you don't get the angle so yeah and just like boxing or wrestling the footwork you know uh, (laughs) the footwork is is tantamount to everything else cool well look uh i don't want to don't want to spend too much time on Bagua because I can blabber on about Gal Bagua anytime I want on the podcast. Uh, before we, you know, start wrapping things up, I want to I want to touch back on the ninjutsu stuff because you're the first ninjutsu practitioner uh, that we've X ex, ex ninjutsu practitioner we've had on. Um, uh, I know a lot of the uh, a lot of the stuff that was going on in the '80s back when this was super popular. Um, sort of uh, the the popularization of that art. How much do you think that contributed to just kind of ruining it in a sense? You know, not for everyone or everybody, but 
whenever anything seems to hit big in popular culture, like I'm kind of hoping this doesn't happen to Bogwa or Shingy. You know? I think no chance, man. They tried, no you chance. know, it's been in a couple wow. featured in a couple of movies, but I've just I've never seen that. But man, something like ninjutsu or you know the kung fu craze. Mm-hmm. All the crazies come out. Everything seems to get watered down to where it's virtually non-existent anymore, and it's all about the fantasy. You know, I mean, ninjas weren't typically disappearing in puffs of smoke in feudal Japan. Mm-hmm. They were spies more than they were soldiers. Mm-hmm. You know, um, or at least that's my understanding from the reading I've done, uh, which again could be way off base. But uh, what's your understanding of what this was before that craze started, and kind of what it's become now? Well. We have specifically talked about what is the Bujinkan today and his offshots, the Genbukan and the Jininkan. I can't talk for the Genbukan because when I came to Japan in in the 90s, Shoto Tanamura, who founded the Genbukan, already left. I just know it from exposure to to, to, to videos and stuff like that. And I trained with Mr. Manaka before he left the Bujinkan, so the Jininkan is... They try to uh, train Bujinkan arts, focusing on the basics and... Those are, uh, I did even either a Jininkan seminar once with Mr. Monaco when he came to Switzerland many years ago. And it was really good, solid, basic training. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely not. Um, we have to settle with the Bujinkan. So before the ninja craze hit, there, there's been another ninja craze in the 60s in Japan. All the Shinobi Mono movies coming oh, out. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Hatsumi Sensei at that time was training with Takamatsu. And Takamatsu coming back from China. This is my version, folks. I mean... It's not the truth. And I mean, I, I, if any Bujinkan guy is going to listen to me, uh, don't spend the night on the internet writing to me because, uh, yeah. Hey, that's it's, why we it, put the disclaimer this, at the beginning the, of the yeah, show. Yeah, this discussion, this discussion has been We're going on. Talking. How legit yeah. How legit is the whole thing? And I think it's pretty legit. It's just not that old and it's not an ninja art, not at all. Uh, Takamatsu came from China, picked stuff up, as I said before. He had this kind of... One guy described it beautifully. He had this kind of different parts of a car, like different parts of an old timer, mm-hmm. but not a real old timer. But it would still work if you put it together in the right... You know the old yeah. Johnny Cash song about the, working at the, the assembly line? Yeah, it's exactly yeah. the thing. Yeah. So in Japan, everything has only value if it's proven by tradition and genealogy and all this stuff, you know. He was there, what shall I do? So... Um, he would start training a few people because his idea was to counter judo on a, on a on a big basic thing, and people weren't so interesting in his system. Right. And uh, he had this student called uh, Hatsumi Mazaki, and at that time Hatsumi Yoshiaki, but Japanese changed their names while they go along, you know. And in America, it's always referred to Doctor Mazaki Hatsumi, mm-hmm. and the doctor isn't a medical doctor; it's a doctor in theater science. So he, is, he, PhD, he comes right. from a theater scene. Ah. And he was asked, because he came out in the 60s as being the last ninja and the, 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 the main student, the inheritor of the style to Toshitsugu Takamatsu. And he, would, he was one of the advisors in many ninja shows. And if you look up YouTube, you find him often talking in Japanese as a young man clo- uh, with all the ninja gear. And he was the guy. But somehow this disappeared. And he would saddle and be a real hard-working martial artist. Um, there was a guy called Quentin Chambers, a friend of Don Drager. They did a mm-hmm. stick-fighting book back, a great book about stick-fighting. It was not ninjutsu, it was Kukishinryu. Right. And I seen recently footage that was released on the net 
I've never seen before, even spending 20 years really seriously in this art, that showed Hatsumi in the 60s, 70s training with people in white geese. And I made a copy of the net and it was gone the next day. Ah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I saw movements in there I haven't seen before. <clears throat> they move differently, quicker, more effective. Uh, Bujinkan today is very slow and very relaxed in many ways. I won't speak for everybody. I mean, there are different groups and with different understandings. So then comes the ninja craze. Mm-hmm. And the ninja craze made the whole thing possible. That people started showing up in Japan. And Hatsumi Sensei didn't invite them. But I mean, right. imagine... You are you got a reputation as let's say you in the do you claim to be inherited some Native American knife fighting stuff, okay? And uh, suddenly uh, Japanese and Korean people starting showing at your door, wanting to learn the thing, and because paying Lou, you a lot of money. Yeah, and partially because Lou Diamond Phillips made a a movie where he showcased it. You know this. Native American fighting okay, art, okay. you know. <laughs> really, really. Well, no, no, but I'm just yeah, yeah, going, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's all working yeah, together. Yeah, the yeah, publicity yeah. is what's getting these yeah. people to look, exactly. and then they're finding you. And you would be mad, and you would be, uh, You'd be like, "What the hell?" Do? Yeah. No, you would be an idiot to send those people away. Yeah, I mean, you would say, "Oh, come on, in. okay, we train." Yeah, and probably the stuff is really good because it's derived from Gaobak. While you do some knife fighting, whatever. Right, right. And then more and more people showing up, and then you're in the position to think, "Well, what am I going to do now?" Yeah. So. But I think the real craze is they left a long time ago. You know, there were, I, I remember in the 80s, 90s, when I started going to seminars, when Bujinkan was really getting popular and we had seminars with 100 people in Germany. Yeah. There were some strange characters out there. But those people are mainly gone. I mean, th- those were just... What I just noticed going to a bookshop recently in your country, or in several bookshops, that the ninja books reappeared. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. There yeah, seems ha, to be ha, like well, a new yeah. new ride coming up and I opened I I mean I haven't done martial arts martial arts magazine for many years and I opened up just for the fun of it in the newsstand a Black Bell magazine that was Steve Hayes in it. And I was like, That's interesting, you know? And there were new books about the Bujin Khan, about ninja training. So I think there were actually some new ninja movies made two or three years ago. Yeah, there's uh, we reviewed one of them on the show. That I forget the actor's name, but there's a guy who's made two or three of them, and he's a really good athlete, you know, very athletic. Yeah, I've seen that one with the artificial blood popping up. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's fun to watch. I mean, no, they're entertaining yeah, as yeah, hell. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing <laughs> yeah, wrong yeah. with it. <laughs> so uh, I think the problem is, like you mentioned, if something gets too big, it attracts the worst and the best. And I've seen great martial artists in the Bujinkan day around, wonderful people, and I've seen also not so skilled and not so. You know, everybody's there for different reasons. So, yeah. But I just want to state, I left the Bujinkan out of personal reasons as a martial artist, not because I have any grudge or anything. So. No, no. And I want to make it clear that we say the same things about all martial arts, ultimately. You know, some have the benefit and the burden of becoming hugely popular mm-hmm. due to some pop culture mm-hmm. movement, whereas others don't go through that as often. Yes, son. Yeah, you can flush. Okay, And you can put your pants back on. <laughs> Permission to flush. Cute. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> that brings me mentally already back home on Wednesday night, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're going to be back in the thick of it. You're probably looking forward to it. Extremely. Very, very much. Really, very much. Well, um, is there anything that you wanted to get out to the listeners of Haya yeah. that we did not touch on? Yeah, it was just great to get the chance because I'm, I'm, 
I really enjoying once in a while listening to the new podcast shows that uh, you, Dave, and the guys bring up. And I have the iPad hooked in my car when I drive, and it's really fun. And I never, I never imagined being a part of the show. So I hope everybody understood me, if, uh, despite my accent. But I think um, no, no, <laughs> your English is fantastic. Uh, uh, far better than my swiss or whatever you guys german yeah that's not to aspire i mean <laughs> well yeah. anyway no i i just want to thank for this terrific time um it was really great and thank you and all the best with your show yeah. hope to uh, see you again yeah absolutely it's been a pleasure thank you all right folks we'll see you after the break well, I left Kentucky back in 49 and went to Detroit working on assembly line. The first year they had me putting wheels on Cadillacs. Every day I'd watch them beauties roll by and sometimes I'd hang my head and cry because I always wanted me one that was long and black. One day I devised myself a plan that should be the envy of most any man. I'd sneak it out of there in the lunchbox in my hand. Now getting caught meant getting fired, but I figured I'd have it all by the time I retired. I'd have me a car worth at least a hundred grand. I'd get it one piece at a time, and it wouldn't cost me a dime. You'd know it's me when I come through your town. I'm gonna ride around in style, I'm gonna drive everybody wild, cause I'll have the only one there is around. So the very next day when I punched in with my big lunchbox and with help from my friend, I left that day with a lunchbox full of gear. I've never considered myself a thief, but GM wouldn't miss just one little piece, especially if I strung it out over several years. The first day I got me a fuel pump, and the next day I got me an engine and a trunk, then I got me a transmission and all the chrome. The little things I could get in my big lunchbox, like nuts and bolts and all four shocks, but the big stuff we snuck out my buddy's mobile home. Now up to now my plan went all right till we tried to put it all together one night, and that's when we noticed that something was definitely wrong. The transmission was a 53, and the motor turned out to be a 73, and when we tried to put in the bolts, all the holes were gone. So we drilled it out so that it would fit And with a little bit of help from an adapter kit We had that engine running just like a song Now the headlights, there was another sight We had two on the left and one on the right But when we pulled out the switch, all three of them come on The back end looked kind of funny too But we put it together and when we got through Well that's when we noticed that we only had one tail fin about that time, my wife walked out, and I could see in her eyes that she had her doubts. But she opened the door and said, honey, take me for a spin. So we drove uptown just to get the tags, and I headed to ride on down main drag. I could hear everybody laughing for blocks around. But up there at the courthouse, they didn't laugh, because to type it up, it took the whole staff. And when they got through, the title weighed 60 pounds. I got it one piece at a time, and it didn't cost me a dime. You'll know it's me when I come through your town. I'm gonna ride around in style, I'm gonna drive everybody wild. Cause I'll have the only one there is around. Uh, yeah, Red Rider, this is the Cottonmouth in the Psycho Billy Cadillac, come on. Oh. 
Uh, this is a cottonmouth, a negatory on the cost of this machine there, Red Rider. You might say I went right up to the factory and picked it up. It's cheaper that way. Uh, what model is it? Well, it's a 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, 57, 58, 59 automobile. It's a 66. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Marshall Brain. It's a natural fact. The appeal to nature and the martial arts. In the field of logic, an important area of study is that of logical fallacies, mistakes of logic to which we are all prone. I have discussed some of these fallacies in earlier editions of The Marshall Brain. Today I will talk about the fallacy called appeal to nature. This fallacy can take two forms. One is the argument that if something is natural, it is good. The other is the argument that if something is unnatural, it is bad. How does this relate to martial arts? If you do a Google search for natural martial arts, you will get a number of hits. Most of these will make some sort of claim that uses the word natural in reference to their particular martial arts program. Many times the claim will assert that their martial arts program is a form of exercise that is a natural alternative to medical treatment for what ails you. Other claims declare that their program uses more natural emotions than many others. So what's wrong with describing your product as natural? The first problem with the appeal to nature is to attempt to define the words unnatural and natural in the first place. No small feat. Centuries ago, the word natural had a different connotation than today. Religion held a larger sway over the culture. Belief in magic was more prevalent as well, and natural referred to the world around us as we observe it, as distinguished from things that were magical, like ghosts, fairies, demons, and angels, which we cannot observe, and were referred to as supernatural. The words science and scientist did not yet exist. People who did science were referred to as natural philosophers, meaning those who studied and thought about what could be observed around them. An important point here is that under this meaning, humans were included as part of the natural world. Obviously, since other humans were not supernatural creatures and were easily observed and observable. If we were using this meaning, natural martial arts would mean non-supernatural martial arts. Well, I'm all for that, but I don't think that's what is meant by the phrase as it's used today. One common current connotation of the word natural is as an expression of an anti-science bias. This especially prevalent use is when used to describe food or, and I'm using scare quotes here, alternative medicine. By the way, I love the description that the brilliant skeptical musician and comedian Tim Minchin uses for alternative medicine. Mr. Minchin says that alternative medicine is medicine that has been proven not to work or has not been proven to work. Do you know what you call alternative medicine that has been proven to work? Medicine. One form of alternative medicine is even called naturopathy. So this definition for natural could read unsullied by the touch of technology. If we follow this definition to its logical conclusion, it raises questions. The wearing of clothing is a form of technology, and therefore not natural. Are natural martial arts practiced au naturel? Any weapon that is not part of your body is by definition not natural. 
So do natural martial arts eschew weaponry training? The wearing of any kind of protective padding is an obvious use of technology. Should its use be avoided? I know these arguments may seem a bit silly, but if you're going to appeal to nature, where do you draw the line between natural and unnatural? Another definition of nature that I have heard is, as nature intended. What is the intention of nature? The answer for many religious people is to describe what the deity that they each worship intended, usually using a holy text for guidance. With the wide diversity of religions in the world, there would likewise be a wide diversity of intentions, many of which would be in conflict with one another. The answer for more secular people is that the universe doesn't possess consciousness and therefore has no intention. So far as I can tell, the practice of martial arts is, by definition, unnatural. So is exercise. I know of no other animal besides humans which, outside of play, engages in exercise for the sake of exercise, unless compelled to by humans. The act of putting deep thought into and then creating a martial arts style, and then practicing that style, is unnatural. As a matter of fact, if natural means that man has not tampered with it, that eliminates martial arts altogether. This would make the phrase, natural martial arts, an oxymoron. It seems to me that it's difficult to impossible to arrive at a definition for natural upon which we all can agree. Even if we resolve the question of definition, we're left with the fallacy that natural is good and unnatural is bad. Consider the claim made by some that the practice of their particular style is a natural alternative to medical treatment. Not only is this claim committing the appeal to nature logical fallacy, it's also committing the false dichotomy fallacy as well, implying that only two possibilities exist. One, where you practice the natural martial arts style and stay away from the doctor, and the other, where you see your doctor but don't practice the natural martial arts style. Why isn't it possible to do both? Again, this particular claim smacks of an anti-science bias. So, is it true that if something is natural, it is good? Can we think of some things that are natural, but bad? How about arsenic, cobra venom, the fact that the sun will eventually grow into a red giant and destroy the earth, the Ebola virus, crab lice, aging, roaches, periodic ice ages, poison ivy, the heat death of the universe, shingles, guinea worm, you should google that, smallpox, eliminated from the world through systematic use of vaccines, more of that pesky technology, and hemorrhoids. Can we think, think of some things that are unnatural, but good? How about wheelchairs, indoor toilets, books, low infant mortality rate as a result of modern medicine, the internet, no one dying of smallpox because medical science eliminated it from the world through systematic use of vaccines, organ transplants, movies, artificial limbs, hearing aids, and ambulances. Now please don't misunderstand my meaning here. Technology can absolutely be abused and lead to problems like climate change. But I put it to you to contemplate this. The problems caused by technology can possibly be solved by more, and especially better, technology. The problems caused by pseudoscience cannot be solved by more pseudoscience. 
Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think at my website, rpmartialarts.com. This has been Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. It's Dave, back again. Uh, sorry how everything worked out with this episode. Uh, I recorded that uh, interview with Stefan. It was a lot of fun, by the way. We had a great time in the Champagne Lounge, as well as talking uh, to each other on the air with you. And uh, about two weeks ago, I recorded that. And uh, we were Craig was going to come over and do a new segment, blah, blah, blah. Well, just things went crazy for me at work. We got busy. Stuff happened. So rather than sit on this any longer, uh, you've pretty much heard the show already. <laughs> you got an interview, you got your fabulous Marshall Brain segment from Jeff Westfall, and you've got me saying, uh, tune in next week because, well, not next week, but before Halloween, our gala, uh, epic, spooktacular Halloween episode will come out. Um, I even had another little segment plan I was going to try to record, but uh, this is the first chance I've had to do it uh, when the whole family went off to t-ball practice and they got there and apparently it's canceled. So they're turning around and coming right back. I'll throw quickly, I'll throw out sort of the, the gist of what I was going to discuss. Uh, you know, for some of us, uh, this time of year uh, is great for breaking out the exotic, scary costumes and sort of getting our freak on. You know, dear listeners, gentle listeners, that I love Halloween for sure. But for a lot of us martial artists, uh, however, playing dress-up is a year-round endeavor. Uh, from the angry pajamas of karate to the silk pajamas in wushu, from the coarse jackets of some grapplers uh, to the singlets 
rash guards of others, from middle-aged styled armor to uh, entire Stay puff marshmallow suits. Uh, we martial artists love a bit of dress-up. <clears throat> so I just want to throw this out for your consideration. Maybe it'll pop up in a future discussion topic or segment. Uh, what do you think the motivations are behind that? I know some of them. I mean, sure, there's a practical side to it. Uh, it's hard to do uh, judo or a lot of swai jiao or a lot of other grappling sports without some sort of jacket to get you hold of. Um, of course, there's plenty of wrestling that you know is basically two dudes in speedos and oiled up good. So you know it's not absolutely necessary. You know, putting the costume on also kind of gives you a feeling of uh, being a part of something. You know, you're dressed that way. Everybody's dressed that way. Often there's a clear ranking system. Uh, lots of benefits we could talk about about uniforms, but, you know, there's downsides too. It breeds a sort of sense of hierarchy, which you may or may not want in your class or in uh, your, your uh, you know, student-teacher relationship. And, uh, you know, sometimes maybe we even get a little delusional when we put on the costume. But that's not always a bad thing either. I mean, if it wasn't for fantasy and, you know, trying to experience something that maybe we're not directly, uh, a lot of us never would have gotten into martial arts in the first place. You know, we, we wanted to feel what it would be like to be powerful, to be the, you know, the Shaolin monk or the uh, ninja warrior or the medieval knight in shining armor, you know, and sure enough, you can get a taste of that. And some people actually stick with it and develop skills that are very much like those of the people that they fantasized about. Now, none of us is going to go back and be a, you know, a ninth century Viking or 12th century or whatever. Uh, it's temporally impossible, but you know, I don't think there's anything wrong on the face of it with playing at that a little bit and sort of keeping some of the skills alive while we're at it. Uh, I don't know. It's a lot to chew on, but I just thought I'd throw it out there. I actually had something more developed. Uh, maybe we'll see that segment pop up sooner, but I think I hear the car in the driveway, folks. So I'm just going to give up on this one. going to let it fly. Hope you enjoy it. And I hope you're all real excited to see what spooky stuff we come up for you in the very next episode of Hiya, the martial arts podcast. Okay. So, uh, thanks to everybody out there who's been sending us feedback, show ideas, interview ideas. There's been a flurry of stuff lately, so keep it coming, keep it coming, and we'll be digging back into the mailbag soon. If you want to throw something in there yourself, it's uh, mailbag at highoutpodcast.com. Make sure you check out the, uh, the Facebook page if you're not on there. The likes keep stacking up over there, so people are paying attention. We got traffic. <laughs> what I'm trying to say here, I'm not boasting. I'm saying, hey, it's worth looking at if you haven't done it yet. Uh, and what else? You know, the website, www.highoutpodcast.com. Craig and I will both be back very soon. Sorry it took so long to get this episode out. And in the meantime, carve yourself a pumpkin and we will see ya. Now and then it keeps you running. Never seems to die Trail spent with fear Not enough living on the outside Never seem to get far enough
Staying in between the lines Hold on what you can Waiting for the end Not knowing when May the wind take your troubles away May the wind take your troubles away Both feet on the floor, two hands on the wheel May the wind take your troubles away Guitar and settle down Catching an all-night station Somewhere in Louisiana It sounds like 1963 But for now It sounds like heaven May the wind take your troubles away May the wind take your troubles away